This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Well, folks, before we start today's episode, we have to make a minor correction from last week. So it came to my attention, courtesy of Old Man Yells at Music on Threads, that the August 23rd CBS preseason game that preempted Melba that we talked about last week was between the Bears and the St. Louis football Cardinals. Because remember, guys, the Cardinals did not move to Phoenix until 88. But, Mike, you said that there was no preseason Hall of Fame game in 86. There must have been. Yeah, he told us there was. It was on August 2nd between New England and the Cardinals. But we were also informed by another user on threads, Andy Sorensen, that the August 30th CBS primetime game that preempted Melba was the Oilers and the Cowboys. I can see why. It's two Texas teams in primetime against each other. I can see that. I mean... Houston would actually be relevant this time and you know who doesn't love to watch the Cowboys lose I mean who doesn't love to watch the Cowboys no you had it right the first time you got it right was Warren Moon there in 86 by this point he had to have been oh absolutely yes I think he started 84 don't correct us I know it was sometime before 86 okay yeah, because he probably would have been on most NFL teams' radar during the 82 strike when they were broadcasting CFL games. All right, now let's talk about Blip Wilson and Gladys Knight. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Punisher! Control! Hey, before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Episode 457, submission number 062, Charlie and Company. Charlie and Company aired on the CBS television network from September 18th, 1985 to May 16th, 1986 for 18 episodes. So that's a crock block plus two. No, it's two crock blocks minus 14. Jeez, I have to teach you guys all the math? Greg, what have we covered from September of 85, if you have that handy? The All-Star Rock and Wrestling Saturday Spectacular. Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. Break the Bank 1985. Your number's up. And... The Tic-Tac-Doe final season with Jim Caldwell. Wait, no Misfits of Science? No, Misfits of Science was 86. No, it was 85-86. It was 85. Uh, Oh, it was 85. Okay. No, Misfits of Science missed September by four days. It premiered October 4th. Ah, there you go then. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Gladys Knight. Picnics in the park. Kids in the car, Sunday's family day, get away. We're family, togetherness, and it's so good to know that we still count on us. Oh, 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 oh. 
you know, if I ever get my ass down to Atlanta, Gladys Knight has one kicking restaurant. Oh. I think uh, her specialty down there is chicken and waffles. Oh, Lord. Well, I'll visit that right before I visit Abdul on the Butcher's House of Ribs first. <laughs> I'm going to hit up Gladys Knight's house of chicken and waffles right before I go to Six Flags over Georgia, then take the Marta train over to Fun Spot to ride Air Force One. Hold on. The restaurant is permanently closed, according to Google. Oh, no. Oh, no. So I guess that means I need to go to the varsity and maybe if I develop a taste for Coca-Cola, maybe make a trip there. Oh, and I got bad news, folks. Abdul, the butcher's house of ribs is permanently closed, too. Now what am I going to do in Georgia? We're just cursed by all these restaurants closing. Yeah, if anybody out there has any sort of suggestion of where to eat in Georgia, because I'm going to be down there one weekend this summer, feel free to hit us up, would you? Again, the varsity. Is the varsity permanently closed? No, the varsity is like a legendary place in Atlanta. It's not closed. I think it's actually open 24-7. It never closes, I think. This is like in Mystery Diners Part 2 when we were checking, is this bar closed? Actually, I think this is more like Man versus Food Chico style. He's going to have his little schedule of visiting like three restaurants, and he's going to buy like an eight-pound hamburger or something like that. I'm trying to lose weight, Mike. Oh, shut up. You can cheat once in a while. By the way, I'm happy to report that Cheesy's in Chicago is still open. Oh, and also taking a look at the Varsity website, there's eight locations. It's fine. It is not closed. What are we supposed to be talking about? We're supposed to be talking about Charlie and Company. Yeah, we're we're supposed supposed to. No, no, no. No, we're supposed to be talking about Gladys Knight's chicken and waffles. I'm hungry. I, too, am hungry. Anyway, um, what were we talking? Oh, yeah. It's the grand finale of our Black History Month celebration. And we are back in the middle of the 80s. We have a resurgence in the family sitcom. And in a TV landscape dotted with them, none were bigger at the time than... Mr. Black. That show, more than any other, put NBC back on the winning track on Thursday nights. And all of a sudden, everyone had to have a family-centric sitcom bonus points if they featured a family of color. Enter Alan Katz, who was in the midst of developing a sitcom about a blue-collar worker for the Chicago Division of Highways who juggled his work and home life with his wife and his 2.3 children. The show was developed as a vehicle for a veteran of stage and screen whose talents know absolutely no bounds. Charles Durning. What? True story. This show was developed as a vehicle for Charles Durning. Yeah, you're you're staring at me like I'm confused. Let me explain. At this point, he was coming off of The Man with One Red Shoe and Death of a Salesman, and a TV show would make the most sense for a guy like him. Now, The Death of a Salesman, that's the 
TV movie that had Dustin Hoffman in it, right? Correct. And of course, we all remember, I'm a dime a dozen and so are you. I am not a dime a dozen. I am Willie Loman and you are Biff Logan. That's really the only line that anybody ever remembers from Death of a Salesman. I was really hoping you're going to say Father Biff Logan. Hey, Mike. I'm going to kick your butt. Now, hold on a second. I'm looking up Death of a Salesman on Wikipedia. I remember John Malkovich being in it. I didn't remember that Stephen Lang was in it, too. I did not know that. Yeah, Stephen Lang from Avatar. I'm sorry. Stephen Lang from Avatar. That's That's the movie that comes after. It's always Showtime at the Apollo. That's the big James Cameron three-hour epic that's coming on right after It's Always Showtime at the Apollo. But remember, It's Always Showtime at the Apollo. It never ends. So you could watch it like on our streaming app because it never ends. We have a streaming app now? Yeah. Good, I can catch Aventura anytime I want. Yeah, right after the Teddy Famous Z and Batman 66. And don't forget about Bitch. Bitch. And the Lost Precinct. Where did this go off the rails here listen if you're a first time listener i'm sorry you have to deal with this but this is like we do this every show so if this is your first time listening i'm very sorry for this i'm sorry we're not talking about flip wilson and gladys knight but okay let's get back on track here hey hold on a second we're actually doing pretty good compared to some other podcasts so charles Durning coming off of man with one red shoe death of a salesman TV show would make the most sense. So, a pilot was commissioned in 1985. The test audiences reportedly loved it. CBS also reportedly loved it. And they decided to put it on Wednesday night on the fall schedule with one key stipulation. Just a slight change. A minuscule change, if you would. Can we turn this into the Mr. Black show. And CBS was like, sure. You can totally buy into that. Just do not tell Alan Katz that. I have an article here from the American Statesman. And Alan Katz addresses the similarities and the differences, but mostly the differences between his show and the show that airs on NBC Thursday nights at 8. The major difference I see, and this is Alan Katz talking, is that Mr. Black has Mr. Black, and we have Flip Wilson and Gladys Knight. Ours is a middle-class family headed by a blue-collar worker. Theirs is a little more of a fantasy with both a doctor and a lawyer in the family. This man, Charlie Robinson, is still struggling to realize his hopes and dreams. Also, 20 years ago, when I was doing my TV show, and this is Flip Wilson talking, Gladys was on the show, and I said then that she'd be a good working partner for me. So for me, this represents the culmination of an idea that I had 12 years ago. Cosby's just jumping on my idea. 
So you can call this show whatever you want. Just do not call it the Mr. Black show. But back to Flip Wilson here. Flip Wilson, too, is a veteran of stage and screen whose talents knew absolutely no bounds. Known primarily for his variety show, which gave rise to the characters of Geraldine. The devil made me do it! And the Reverend Leroy of the Church of What's Happening Now. So you take a look at those two characters among a host of others and what he was doing with that show. It was an amazing show. If you've ever seen it before, you love this show. But Charlie and company would represent a bit of a departure for him because he's going from that sort of post-Vaudeville variety show of the 1970s. Now, all of a sudden, he is the father who knows nothing in the 1980s. I'm not going to say it's a bit of a stretch, but if anybody can pull it off, Flip Wilson could. Of course, he would have a little bit of help. Let's talk about the cast, shall we? First of all, we have joining Flip Wilson as Charlie Richmond. They changed it from Robinson to Richmond. Probably because of a little show called Night Court. I don't know. Charlie Robinson. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a penis. Playing Diana Richmond, of course, is Gladys Knight, a legendary actress and singer. Of course, she of the famous group, The Pips. And also the famous Midnight Train to Georgia. Playing their 2.3 children are Charlie Jr. Richmond, played by legend of daytime drama Christoph St. John. Rest in peace. Playing the uh, middle child Lauren Richmond is Fran Robinson, who didn't do much before this show and didn't do much after. Uh, She was on an episode of Family Ties and an episode of Charles in Charge, but that was pretty much it. And then the point three child of the group, nine-year-old Robert Richmond, played by Jaleel White. Talk about Family Matters, Sonic the Hedgehog. Isn't he doing a game show for CBS or like a pilot? for? I just saw he is doing a game show. This fall, called Flipside. What a pun on what we're doing right now. Flipside. Yep, it is coming this fall on syndication. Check your local listings. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait for you to see it. And then we have the workmates of Charlie Richmond. Uh, Walter Simpson, played by Ray Girardin, who's known for Hollywood Man, number one with a bullet, and Hill Street Blues. Sadly, no longer with us. He died in 2019. As Milton Bieberman, we have Richard Karen, known for History of the World Part 1, Fatso, and A Pleasure Doing Business. Again, no longer with us. He died in 2017. Ronald Sandler, played by Kip King, known for... Meet the Fockers in 2004, A Night at the Rossbury in 1998, and as a technician in the original Westworld movie. But y'all talked about him before. He was on an episode of The Monsters Today. 
playing Jim Coyle, Terrence McGovern. He was the voice of Launchpad in DuckTales the Movie, Treasure of the Lost Lamp, among other DuckTales works. You don't sound like Beck Bennett to me. Playing Miguel Santana is Eddie Velez, who is seemingly the king of the that guy from that thing, because he was in White Chicks, Traffic, Repo Man, and the final season of the A-Team. If I'm not mistaken, we talked about him last week, didn't we? Maybe. We mentioned the final season of the A-Team, but I think we mentioned in terms of Melba, it was up against the next, the last season of the A-Team. But hold on, you mentioned White Chicks. Was he in Little Man? Oh, Lord. I'm guessing no. That's a shame. Just as a preview of coming attractions, there is one more cast member of note that we will hold off on discussing until we get to that particular episode. Because there is a point where this show goes absolutely off the rails and CBS decided, y'all know what y'all need? Some help. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about the episode, shall we? Episode one, the pilot. Charlie is asked by Junior to speak at career day at his school. All is well until Charlie freezes up with a case of stage fright. Episode two. Easy for you to say. Charlie faces difficult tasks on the home front. He has to cancel the family's camping trip due to work, and Lauren wants to discuss relations. Because, you know, Lauren's getting to be that age where he have to make that talk, and you can tell that they're taking all of the beats from that other show, or, you know. Episode 3, Muggers or Us. Charlie wants Diana to transfer to another school after there's an incident of vandalism at her school. We have a name in this episode. Playing Guthrie, Bill Saluga. That name may not sound familiar, but he died last year. And uh, all I can say is you can call him Ray or you can call him Jay or you can call him Ray Jay, but you don't have to call him Johnson. We've talked about him in the past. He was on an episode of Teachers Only, and I thought we talked about him somewhere else. I think he was on one of the variety shows we talked about, possibly uh, the Red Fox uh, comedy hour or whatever it was after Sanford and Son got canceled. I do remember we talked about him in some sort of variety show. Episode four, Buddy, Can You Spare My Dime? Charlie struggles to find the nerve to ask for the money his boss owes him while the family struggles through Diana's nutrition campaign. There's always one episode where everybody goes alfalfa. Are you talking about having a bad cowlick? That's coming up next episode. <laughs> episode 5, The World According to Jim. Charlie and Diana soon regret letting Charlie's co-worker move in during his marital spat. So Jim is moving into the house. And if you've ever seen that episode of King of the Hill, where a uh, guy who used to be played by uh, Danny Trejo moves in with the Hills, it's kind of like that. 
Episode 6. Like father, like son. Junior is sorely taxed by Charlie's sudden desire to be more of a pal than a father. Episode 7. Will be around. The children are upset when Charlie talks of making out a will following a brush with death. Episode 8. Operation Richmond. Just after the family decides to cut back on expenses, Charlie has to go into the hospital for an operation. Haven't had much in the way of uh, names so far, but we do have this one playing Kravitz, one of the doctors. David Fresco, best known for Mouse Hunt, Diggs Town, and Naked Gun 33 and a third, The Final Insult. Episode 9, Happy Anniversary. Sort of. Charlie's behavior at a faculty party he and Diana attend threatens the celebration of their 20th wedding anniversary. Episode 10, For the Love of Lauren. A jilted Lauren thinks all men are jerks until she attends a concert with a consoling Miguel, the ladies' man, of Charlie's office. I'm thinking something I obviously should not be thinking, so I'm just going to go on to the next episode. Who's watching the roads? Charlie's co-workers plan to take full advantage of their boss's absence, despite the fact that he left Charlie in charge. Episode 12. This is the Christmas episode. Silent Night. Spelled K-N-I-G-H-T. Charlie's looking forward to spending Christmas with his family, but Junior and Lauren have other ideas. Episode 13, which actually aired on Christmas, Bows and Arrows, which kind of reads like the Valentine's episode, if you think about it. But it's bows spelled B-E-A-U-S, not like a bow and arrow. Diana's old college boyfriend returns. Sadly, no information is available on who played that character. That was the last of the original 13 episodes that CBS ordered. In the middle of the season, showing a bit of faith, they ordered an additional five episodes of the show. But they're putting it on the schedule, wherever, whatever, trying to make it work. We'll get to like the schedule in depth in a moment, but right now, it is on Wednesdays at 9. You know what else is on Wednesdays at 9? Moonlighting. Dynasty. Oh! Moonlighting would come a little bit later. Yeah, because remember, he said Wednesday nights. And Moonlighting, if I'm not mistaken, was a mid-season replacement show. Yeah, 84-85, it was mid-season replacement, but 85-86, it's in its first full season. So if Charlie and Company is going to survive to the end of the season order and beyond, a change had to be made. So it wasn't enough to have Gladys Knight as the ideal partner or the three kids as comic foils. Episode 14, Here's Rachel. Aunt Rachel joins the household, and hilarity ensues. 
playing at Rachel for the rest of the run, another legend of stage and screen, Della Reese. We talked about her on The Royal Family, obviously. She's been on Match Game a few weeks. She's a recording artist, of course, best known as Roma Dowdy's boss, Angel, in Touched by an Angel. But we're going to talk about her again because she was in season two of The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo. And of course, like Homer Simpson, I miss Sheriff Lobo. Mike, do you miss Sheriff Lobo? I miss Sheriff Lobo. By the way, before we continue, the five episodes that were ordered after the first 13, we get less of the work life and more of the home life. Apparently, the work life did not test well. Episode 15, Rachel and the Stranger. After a burglary, Aunt Rachel is too scared to return alone to her apartment, so Diana volunteers Charlie to stay overnight with her. Episode 16, When You Least Expect It. The family knows that Diana has something on her mind, but she won't talk about it until she's sure that she's pregnant. What? Uh-oh. What is uh-oh? Yes, Susan. That's exactly right. Uh-oh. No, Greg, you're wrong. That's not Susan that's going to go there. Ken Jennings is going there. Oh! My Susan sounds different. Welcome to the club, Ken, of uh-ohs. By the way, we will be talking about Ken Jennings later on this year. Episode 17. Don't take my son, please. Bored with school, Junior decides to join the army. Let me just say, this is a decision that's not going to work well in about five years. Really, Greg? So we have a case of one actor playing two roles during the entire run, and that actress is Phyllis Katz, who is playing the second of two roles in this episode, and she's best known for 25 episodes of something called Sherman Oaks. Is it about a golf course? No, it's about a plastic surgeon and his family who are the subject of a documentary being made by a young filmmaker who has moved in with them and keeps their every move. And hilarity ensues. And Peter Billingsley is somehow involved. Okay, seriously, when I heard Sherman Oaks, I thought it might be about Sherman Helmsley and about how he picked up that 50-year-old stripper from the Boom Boom Room. Now, Mike... You've come around on the 50-year-old stripper, correct? No. I still say, yuck. But also, this was like a PSA for her because, you know, number one, I don't want her tripping over her boobs. They're probably down by her ankles. That's a trip hazard. But also, two, if you're 50 years old and you're stripping, you are sort of at that age where instead of guys giving you money, you need to give guys money. No, Mike, you don't understand. There's a lot of horny 25-year-olds that want to give middle-aged strippers money. You do not understand the market for cougars. No, I get the market for cougars, but seriously, they couldn't go for like a 35-year-old woman? 
at least 35-year-old women don't have that many varicose veins. And Greg just did his impersonation of Yankees Thumbs Down guy right now. Glad to see you agree with me. And the final episode, Rent and Rave. Wait, hold on. What did you say the first word was? Ha! 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 I haven't heard from Crystal Bernard in a long time. I said rent. I want to see rent. Apparently so does the landlord because the Richmonds are facing a rent hike. Where is the rent? I must have the rent. Pennies, dimes, and nickels. I need them all right now. So that is the show, and, well, what happened? Well, let's look at the schedule here. They put it on during the fall opposite Dynasty. And in between two other new shows, Stir Crazy, future entry Stir Crazy, and something called George Burns' Comedy Week. Oh, that was like an anthology comedy series with George Burns. The lone bright spot of that schedule, that fall Wednesday schedule on CBS, The Equalizer. Oh, yes, because everyone knew Edward Woodward, you don't mess with him. Got a problem? Odds against you? Call The Equalizer. And it was all about that awesome Stuart Copeland theme. And then again, Denzel Washington also killed it. Queen Latifah also killed it. Yeah. Love that show. Stir Crazy went away in the middle of the fall, and they replaced it with Airwolf, hoping that would help matters. It did not. So Ernest Borgdine could not save that slot. That's a shame. It's a shame. It's... Like, what time slot was this in? It was Wednesday at 9. Oh, well, 9 o'clock, he can't do what he loves doing the most at 9 o'clock, Ernest. Oh, talking about stuff that we haven't pulled out of the mothballs in a while. I masturbate a lot. Let's just remember Ernest Borgnine, he was Mermaid Man in those uh, episodes of SpongeBob SquarePants. Total legend. And my students agree with me on that, even though they don't know who Ernest Borgnine is. I just bring up... Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy, and they're like, oh, those are the best episodes ever. And I say, you know what? Yes, they are. But then you throw in Charles Nelson Riley as the dirty bubble, and you have like the magnificent trifecta there. So, after the 13 episodes, they decide to pull the show for retooling and put it back on Tuesdays at 8.30 after previous entry that we talked about last week, Melba. But as we talked about last week, yeah, something happened on that Tuesday, and CBS was like, oh, no. Suffice it to say, that did not work out as well as they had hoped. Goddamn NASA. Should have listened to Morton Thiokol. After Melba, which we talked about last week, it did not do any better. In fact, it did far worse. CBS pulled it at the end of April and replaced it with something called Morning Star, Evening Star. I have the season ratings 
on a season of 82 episodes, this is from the TV ratings guy, Charlie and Company placed 66th. Oh, that's a shame. Because if it finished three more spots down, it would have finished in 69th. Wait, I need to do that again. No, you don't. Really? No, no, no I don't. Because that, that that is a that is a fallacy. That is a falsehood. Oh, what? Wait, wait, wait! wait. You, you're bringing Greg's hopes up now. Okay, okay, you, okay. You, here you it better, is. You better come through here. Okay. In a season of 82 shows on the big three networks, Charlie and Company placed 68th. Oh, if it finished one more spot below, it would have been the nicest spot of them all. Sadly, that was the ABC season of Different Strokes. Oh, well, nice for Gary Coleman then. Hold on. There's somebody from that season of Different Strokes that we'll be talking about in the next episode. I don't want to spoil it, but let's just say we'll be saluting their short. You see what I get there, Chica? I totally it? see what you did there. I'm doing this as hard as I can. <laughs> I know exactly what you did. I This is my response. I have no regrets. Oh, my gosh. But the show never re-ran anywhere, Charlie and Company. Per the extent of our research, there was no home release, but you can watch the full run of the show right now for free on YouTube. And the show didn't really do much of the way of harm to any of the careers of the principals, except for Fran Robinson. We haven't heard much from her after all. But Flip Wilson is still a comedy legend. Gladys Knight is still one of the greatest voices in soul music. Jaleel White, still Urkel. Christoph St. John, still a legend of the daytime drama and sadly missed. And Della Reese, well, she's still Della Reese, but Charlie and Company, CBS thought it was going to be the next Mr. Black show. Instead, opposite both Dynasty and MacGyver and Growing Pains, Charlie and Company became a thing on TV. Hey, guys, what if I decided right now I wanted to buy a Gladys Knight in the Pips CD on a certain e-commerce website. Well, guess what, guys? Oh, boy. It's time to play Amazon Price is Right. So, guys, you're going to be bidding on the price right now. If you were to buy right now an import CD of the Gladys Knight and the Pips Gold CD on Amazon Prime right now, and you could have it delivered to your house by tomorrow. So, it's only if you order it within the next hour and 29 minutes. So, you're bidding on the price of the import CD, if I was to buy it right now on the date we're recording this, February 23rd, 2024. And Chico, I'm going to start the bidding with you. I'm going to go with $35. 
$35. Mike. It's an import, so it's got to be higher. I'm going to say $39. You have both overbid. Oh, what? Well, forget that then. You, know, you got to go lower than $35, Chico. $25. Mike. It's got to be more than $25. Twenty-seven fifty. You've both overbid again. What? Are you kidding me? Okay, so you got a bid lower than twenty-five dollars, Chico. Nine ninety-nine. Mike. We told the affiliates that the news is going to be a little late today. It's got to be more than nine ninety-nine. I will die on this hill if I have to. Thirteen ninety-nine. Mike, you're right. That was more than nine ninety-nine. But the price was ten dollars and sixty-five cents. Hey! Chico wins. <laughs> For an import, only ten dollars. Okay, that's a steal. Let me see how many tracks there are on here. What are the tracks on those? What's the listing? Okay, we got a three CD set, thirty-nine songs. So let me read the songs here. Every beat of my heart, letter full of tears, giving up. Everybody needs love. I heard it through the grapevine. The end of our road. It should have been me. The nitty gritty. Oh, I wish it was about gritty from the flyers, but friendship train. You need love like I do, don't you? If I were your woman, I don't want to do wrong. Make me the woman you come home to. Help me make it through the night. Neither one of us wants to be the first to say goodbye. I love that song. Daddy could swear, I declare. Where peaceful waters flow. Midnight train to Georgia. I've got to use my imagination. You're the best thing that ever happened to me. I feel a song in my heart. Love finds its own way. On and on. The way we were slash try to remember. Money. Part time love. Make yours a happy home. So said the song. Baby, don't change your mind. Landlord. Save the overtime for me. You're number one in my book. Hero. A.K.A. Wind Beneath My Wings. Send it to me. Love Overboard. Love on Next to Nothing. The single version. License to Kill, Men, Superwoman, the radio edit. I'm guessing License to Kill is the song Gladys sung for the movie License to Kill, the James yes. Bond movie from 89. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay, I got to tell you, I love me some Gladys Knight. I'm like real tempted to buy that right now. Well, it's a UK CD, so like you can easily get like those three CD sets from the UK they have like 40 or 50 songs to them. They're like 10, 15 bucks. Totally worth it. I could put like a couple of those for like 80s remixes, like maybe six, seven years ago. Okay. Well, we've had Charlie and company. Now it's time for Gene and Bowser and company. It's time for this weekend match game. Hollywood Square. Power. History! We're now rounding the corner into the end of February and early March of 1984. And this week, we've got a special week. It's too close for comfort week. Yay! Woohoo! We have from the cast of Too Close for Comfort, Ted Knight, Nancy Dussault, Lydia Cornell, Deborah Van Valkenburg, Jim J. Bullock, Elise Knight, even though I don't think she was on Too Close for Comfort all that often. And then you had Arsenio Hall and Bart Braverman. I know those two weren't on Too Close for Comfort. They definitely weren't. I've seen enough Too Close for Comfort. I don't remember if they were on. So now this week, 
The only real like change we have is the bumper card that they show like halfway through the show when they go to commercial. Or actually, I think they do it during all the commercials. It's now a solid blue color instead of that gradient from like mild blue to like a very light blue, almost like a whitish blue. In terms of big money this week, we had two wins. John won $20,000 on the Wednesday episode and Lydia won $10,000 on the Thursday episode. Now next week, we have some familiar names showing up. We've got some people that uh, we've talked about in the past and also actually people who we're going to talk about in future episodes. I'm not going to spoil it, but it's one of the episodes that um, I don't want to cover it. It's so bad, but it's sort of like a train wreck. You got to like stop and look at it and just take a look at the gore. So that's going to be it for this week. Chico, back to you to close everything up. Georgia is the land of big southern breakfasts, decadent desserts, and superior fried chicken. My first stop in Atlanta has all three with a side of soul. Gladys Knight and Ron Winans Chicken and Waffles, home of the Midnight Train. Four extra large fried chicken wings served on top of a dinner plate sized waffle. Shanga Hankerson opened the place in 1997 with his mother, Gladys Knight, and his uncle, gospel singer Ron Winans. Hey, what's going on? What's up, Adam? He greets me with the sweet potato cheesecake of hospitality. This is my introduction. I'm already loving this place. So good. Shanga brings me to the kitchen where a soulful surprise awaits. I'm sorry, I'm a little... I grew up with this lady's music in my home. I just... I gave you the music, now I gotta give you the food. Oh, please. So, you grew up making this stuff? All the women in my family were cooks. Uh-huh. I'm proud to say that I know how to cook. Every single Sunday, and this is true, we had about 50 or 60 family members at my mom's house. It wasn't at nobody else's house. Every week? Every week. I'm primed for a historical moment in my pig out mission. Gladys Knight, the empress of soul, is gonna make me chicken and waffles. Time to ride the midnight train. All right, here we go. Boop, boop. After the chicken dredges in flour, it marinates overnight in a secret blend. Then it's ready for the fryer. Take a look at this color that's developing in this chicken. It's just been dredged a little bit, and it's already turning golden brown. Chicken and Waffles made their debut in 1930s Harlem, New York, to satisfy late-night diners craving both dinner and breakfast. Gladys toured Harlem decades later, fell in love with the combo, and brought it back to Atlanta. Oh, look at that. It's Golden brown. There you go. Whatever waffle golden smell you think is amazing, brown. Nah, it's here. It almost has like a, a ice cream cone. It does. Like that kind of sweet malted, malted smell. Spicy, spicy. Those wings are massive. Those did not come from a chicken. No, those... This is the difference between ours and the others. Which is? It's the size of our chicken wings, as well as the recipe. It's leaving. Bro, I'll do that. <laughs> oh, 
On that midnight train to Georgia. Georgia? See, this is my pip right here. I am. I'm a, I'm a little white pip. I'm a whip. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the midnight train right here, we own it. Georgia? Yeah. Yeah. Despite what may, may have gone on in my dreams, this is not a date. <laughs> yes, it is. Cool. Episode 458, submission number 2522, The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley. The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley aired on NBC Saturday mornings from September 10th of 1988 to December 13th of 1988 for your standard 13 episodes, three less than your traditional crock block. know if you heard the news my birthday's coming up this coming sunday happy birthday mike thank you and as we always do around here for birthdays you're given the money in the bank you're going to do one special episode and if we look back in the history of the podcast in 2021 i covered you don't know jack i think we agreed that was not a good episode or at least not a good show to cover on this podcast. It was not really good. I liked it. I, well, that's the reason I did it is I liked it, but I'm sure if you ask Greg, that was a bomb. That wasn't good. And then how dare I mention this, but in 2022, I covered the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle show. And I'm not even going to look in the Zoom chat, but I can imagine that Greg has about seven Yankees thumbs down guys right there. He somehow created more thumbs just to give thumbs down to the Hudson Brothers Razzle Tazzle show. So that was not a good episode. But again, wasn't bad because of anything I did outside of spending my hard-earned money on that stupid DVD set and, and spending my time watching the DVD but last year, I think I made up for it quite a bit, covering Madam's Place. That was really a fun episode. And also remember, that was where we introduced the G-Man for the first time. Wait, wait, this is the one-year anniversary of the G-Man? That's right. Bet you the G-Man's out cracking a few cans in celebration. Well, I'm sure right now he's running the skate shop in Skate or Die. Yeah, I heard he just bought that back, so. <laughs> so, at this point, I'm, let's say, one for three. One and a half for three. 
you're generous. I'm guessing you're giving me the half for you don't know Jack. That would be correct. We all know that nobody's giving me any points or any credit at all for the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle show. I should have assumed that half point went to you don't know Jack. I'm giving you a hard ass time for the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle show. Well, you guys have been doing that for two years now. I put you guys through a lot. But I think redemption is in the stars tonight. Tonight, we're going to talk about Martin Short. And if I remember correctly, this is the first time we're going to talk about Martin Short. But it probably won't be the last, because I'm looking at you, Maya and Marty. That is false. We did talk about Martin Short before. On previous entry... Y'all gonna make me say this again? If it's the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle show, you don't have to say it. I'm a big girl now. (laughs) No! Not only that, but look at the background on my Zoom wall. (laughs) Saturday... What? No, no. Go, because Marty hosted in 85... Oh, he hosted in 85, 86. Because he would have been on the cast 84, 85. Yeah, because he would have been on with uh, Chevy and um, Steve to plug Three Amigos. Actually, no, Greg Martin was not in the 85-86 SNL episode since him, Chevy, and Steve hosted in the 86-87 season. It's just like hearing Chico admit that he's a big girl now. (laughs) Took a lot of bravery, a lot of guts, and to do it on my episode. You're a brave big girl now, Chico. So in 1988... Somebody somewhere at NBC or somebody somewhere with Hanna-Barbera, since they produced this show, they thought an Ed Grimley cartoon would be a great addition to the Saturday morning lineup. Now, mind you, as Chico just mentioned, Martin Short was on SNL in 1984 and 1985, so you're talking about three years before was the last time Ed Grimley really had any sort of relevance in terms of not being rerun. I mean, we know that SCTV and probably to a lesser extent, the 1984, 85 season of SNL got rerun time in the 80s. But somebody looked at this and said, hey, we're going to make a Saturday morning cartoon out of this. I've got some questions about that just because... In 1988, I would have been 13, and Ed Grimley was not really even on my radar that much. And if me at 13, or just a 13-year-old in general, it doesn't show up in their radar, it probably doesn't show up on a lot of 13-year-olds' radars. So this series, it focused on Ed Grimley's home life. And specifically, it focuses on his neighbors, his landlord, and there's some interstitial segments that occasionally happen. One related directly to SCTV, the other made up for the show. We'll get to that in a little bit. Now, you see the typical Ed Grimley in this series to a point. He plays the triangle a lot. You don't see any pictures of Pat Sajak maybe for good reason. And he gets into just a lot of just general mischief because of his own doing. And it gets really bizarre. I'm just going to tell you that right now, this gets really, really bizarre. 
And actually, I mentioned to Chico and to Greg when I was starting to watch this that 10 minutes into the first episode, I had regrets. I thought this was not necessarily stupid, but uh, I was getting disinterested and confused, really confused. And then there must have been something that happened around episode two or episode three where I'm like, you know, this is actually kind of funny. And then, as I told Greg and Chico before we started recording, at like episode 11, episode 12, I'm dead. Clinically dead because of just some of the goofy stuff that happened and some of the names they use. and It's really absolutely hilarious. In this series, we have a lot of good quality names. I'm going to go through all of them, but I'm not going to go through all their credits because seriously, we could spend half an hour talking about all these people. We talked about Martin Short. Earlier, we talked about him on SCTV, and also we talked about him on SNL. If you remember, he had a talk show back in the day, and honestly, I think the place that I remember him or at least I remember him best from my early years, is The Three Amigos. I absolutely love that movie. Again, that sort of hit that sweet spot of getting to Mike at age 11, and just all the comedy clicked perfectly. And I really shouldn't ignore Only Murders in the Building. I'm so glad that ABC showed that a couple of months ago as uh, strike filler programming. And season four is coming up soon. Meryl Streep in the cast. Well, Meryl Streep was in the third season, so they're bringing it back in season four. I might actually have to spend money on that. You know who's in season three of Only Murders in the Building? Who's that? Paul Rudd. And you know what that means. Really? On my birthday episode? Yes! Okay, you know what? I'm bringing out all the big guns when you do your money in the bank in May. So you just set yourself up for a big batch of failure. Okay, good. Again, with familiar names. Playing Miss Malone, who is the neighbor of Ed Grimley, is Catherine O'Hara, another SCTV alum. You're going to hear a lot of SCTV alum names in this episode. They bring out, like, everybody. Just about. Giving the voice to Mrs. Freebus in this series, she's the wife of the landlord of the apartment complex that Ed Grimley lives in, another SCTV alum, Andrea Martin. But playing Mr. Freebus, and not just Mr. Freebus, he plays, oh gosh, I probably counted at least like six or seven different characters. He plays Mr. Freebus, he plays... Uh, one of the Gustav brothers, who we'll get to in a little bit. He plays the Gustav brothers' mother. He did so many voices on this. And once I heard his voice, especially with some of these characters, it's like, oh, great. This explains why this series is so bizarre to a point beyond Ed Grimley. Jonathan Winters. I know we haven't talked about him much 
We talked about him in Davis Rules, where I absolutely loved him. I thought he was the main reason why Davis Rules was so enjoyable, because really, who falls in love with uh, Randy Quaid? He should be a Mr. Black. Yeah. There you go. We just added another Mr. Black to our running list of people that we despise. Randy Quaid, you're on there. Playing Count Floyd, which is another one of the interstitials. You have the uh, Gustav brothers we'll talk about in a little bit. And Count Floyd, who came from SCTV, is, again, another SCTV vet. Joe Flaherty. Giving voice to Sheldon, who is Ed Grimley's pet rat, is legendary voice actor Frank Welker. And again, we could be here forever and a day talking about what he's done. We've talked about him plenty of times. Giving voice to Wendell Malone, who is the brother of Catherine O'Hara's character, Miss Malone, is Danny Cooksey. We mentioned him last episode because he was on the final two seasons of Different Strokes. But he was Bobby Budnick on the Nickelodeon classic, Salute Your Shorts. Oh, and Mike, do you know what movie he was in in 1988? 1988. Oh, uh, no. If Are you setting this up again? Yes. Okay, so we played this stupid clip twice now. Are you really going for like the high score this week? Yes. Well, good. I think it's going to stay at two unless you have some devious plan. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Who knows? Are you saying that like uh, Rob Lowe uh, in uh, Austin Powers with your finger up to your mouth? Maybe I won't. (laughs) When did you get a cat named Mr. Bigglesworth? Oh, never mind. That's the main cast, but there are so many names who provided additional voices in this series. I cannot let them just be unmentioned. Rene Aubergenois. We have Rob Paulson. Pinky from Pinky and the Brain. Artie Johnson. Artie Johnson did a voice. You know him from Laughing. Dave Thomas, another SCTV alum. Charlie Adler, he provided voices on a show that I recently rediscovered on Cartoon Network with their checkered past block, Helen Chicken. Well, that's the greatest show, I think, maybe not in the history of the world, but I think it's underrated, especially when it comes to Cartoon Network shows. Also providing voices in this series, somebody we've talked about a number of times, Hamilton Kim. I know we mentioned him when I referred to the second episode of Turn On appeared on Internet Archive or YouTube maybe six months to a year ago, Hamilton Camp was one of the cast members on that second episode. I don't remember if he was on the first. I don't know if even really we got to see the entire first episode. I don't think so, but he's definitely on that second episode. So needless to say, we have... A great cast here. Great voices, great actors. 
a very powerful cast. So the way the show is formatted, you have the main cartoon, and then sometime in the first generally six, seven, ten minutes, before the halfway point in the show, they cut away to the interstitial with the Amazing Gustav Brothers. And the Amazing Gustav Brothers, they do an animated segment about science in some capacity. It's supposed to be a science lesson tied into whatever Ed Grimley is going through. We'll get to that in a little bit. You'll see how that works out. And then in the second half of the show, Ed Grimley always wants to see his favorite TV show, which is Count Floyd's Scary Stories. And sometimes he sees it on his television. Sometimes he sees it in a television elsewhere, in a hospital, or in a limousine, or even on one episode, he starts falling asleep and dreams about the Count Floyd show. And at the end of each episode, not unlike Doogie Howser and numerous other shows, Ed writes down something in his diary about what happened that day. Now, I'm going to admit, I'm going to use the episode guide from Wikipedia But the episode guide from Wikipedia only has capsules for about four or five different episodes regarding the Amazing Gustav Brothers segments and Count Floyd's Scary Story segments. I have taken very intricate notes on the episodes that are not listed. So episode one is called Tall, Dark, and Handsome. The spelling on that is H-A-N-S-O-M which if you know what a handsome is, should give you a little tip as to what the episode's about. Ed fills in for his cousin driving a handsome cab and ends up in a horse race. Basically, it's a horse-drawn carriage, and the horse that Ed rides or controls, he's very lackadaisical, very slow, but when he hears certain types of music, he just like dashes off really fast, recklessly, and this happened once, in this cab when the mayor and her dog were getting a ride. And once this recklessness happened, the mayor gets out of the cab and says, oh, let me see. Oh, this is run by, she saw the name Grimley, but saw that it wasn't Ed Grimley. It was actually his uncle that rode the cab. So she looked at the license and said, you know, Mr. Grimley, you're going to lose your license. Unfortunately, Ed realized It's not him that's going to lose the license. It's his uncle who had nothing to do with this. Ultimately, Ed Grimley and the horse end up in this horse race. And I think we've heard this story before where the horse starts really slowly. And Ed Grimley has this moment of genius. He gets Wendell's Walkman and has the music on there that drives the horse crazy. And he puts the earphones over the horse's ears and the horse runs out of control real fast, catching up in the race. Doesn't win though, because the mayor is at this race with her dog. And when the mayor sees Ed Grimley, she gets mad, but also the dog is furious and wants to like fight the horse. And so the dog runs onto the track. The horse stops 
in its tracks before running into the dog. They don't win the race, but the mayor says, hey, thank you for not running over the little dog. I'm not going to take away your license after all. There's a nice little happy ending there. Now, the amazing Gustav brothers come into play because before the first speed up where the mayor threatens to take away the license, there's movers who are trying to move a piano to like the top floor of the building and they have like a pulley system. They're trying to pull up the piano and unfortunately the rope breaks and the piano starts falling. And thankfully everybody involved, the horse, Ed Grimley, the mayor, her dog, they get out of harm's way real fast. But that takes us to the first segment with the amazing Gustav brothers, Roger and Emil. They talk about gravity where Emil demonstrates Sir Isaac Newton's discovery of gravity by jumping out of the airplane dressed as an apple. One problem, though. Emil forgets his parachute. So Emil turns into applesauce. Well, not really, but yeah, no parachute. And then in Count Floyd's Scary Stories, Count Floyd reads to the children a story called The Curse of the Headless Mummy, where an archaeologist named Dr. Smythe enters a tomb containing a headless mummy where hieroglyphics say... He who enters this tomb will never leave and be trapped for all eternity. I should add, I mentioned earlier that Roger Gustav is voiced by Jonathan Winters. Emil Gustav is voiced by Martin Short. Going to episode two, Ed's debut. Ed mistakenly thinks he is asked to play triangle for the city's Philharmonic Orchestra. On the way to the concert hall, Ed Grimley is arrested and imprisoned for a bank robbery he did not commit. Basically, he was in a car, driving his car, and the robbery happened at that time, and Ed Grimley was basically in the wrong place at the wrong time. The bank robbers jumped in his car, and Ed had to say, hey, I had nothing to do with this. They came in my car. Clarity ensues. For the Amazing Gustav Brothers segment, Roger and Emil talk about centrifugal force by visiting the amusement park by going on the screaming banshee of hades ride another problem though darn emil he had some food before he got on and started throwing up and then on count floyd's scary stories count floyd reads to the children a story about a little girl who went to visit her grandfather in oklahoma who advised her not to go into the attic When a kid asks if Count Floyd is a real vampire because of his howling, Count Floyd comments that his grandmother is a part werewolf and it runs in the family. When he tries to turn into a bat, the spell Count Floyd uses makes him fat instead. Oh, God. And hilarity really ensues when he tries getting back into his coffin, but he's fat. He can't fit into it. He's fat. He's fat. I think this might have been the turning point where I went from this is like laborious, this is not good to this is actually very funny if you really look at the uh, segments involving the amazing Gustav brothers and Count Floyd scary stories. And I'll be the first to admit it, I spent most of my time watching those over the cartoon itself. Not to take anything away from the cartoon, but I thought these segments were absolutely hilarious. 
Episode three is called E.G. Go Home. Ed and Wendell, the annoying brother of his crush, a ditzy amateur actress named Miss Malone, go on an amusement park ride rocket, taking them to another planet which is ruled by an alien queen who sounds like Betty Davis. Oh, wow. And I think this was a Twilight episode where some people went to another planet and they were put in like a human zoo. That happened to them too. They walked into like Earthling Park. So they see all these aliens dressed as humans. They're like, oh, good. There's actually like real humans here. And it's just aliens acting as humans at this amusement park. And so the aliens take off their masks and Ed and Wendell just get the living stink just scared out of them because there's no humans here. Somehow they get home. I don't remember exactly how they get home, but hilarity surely ensued. So for the amazing Gustav brothers, since we're talking about a rocket ship, their segment was about rocket propulsion, where Emil wears a jetpack in an uninhabited desert that would make him zoom off into the stratosphere. And then Count Floyd's scary story for this week, in his imagination, Ed talks to Count Floyd, apologizing for missing his show, because he's on another planet. Count Floyd decides to make an exception and rerun it for him. In this episode, Count Floyd reveals that he, in his bat form, starred in first-rate horror films for getting his own show. He shows his first flick he made called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Ed. Here's the question I have, Mike. You see Ed's calendar in the episode? Oh, yes. There's five days in a week on his calendar. So I'm wondering, did Ed buy like a crappy calendar that only shows five days of a week? Because I think Ed's getting ripped off there. Maybe it's like a Simpsons thing where everybody has four fingers. Maybe in this world, there's only five days in a week. Or maybe he got ripped off of the two days a week. I don't know. Well, remember, he also paid 19 bucks for that Count Floyd poster. But that was money well spent. I mean, you, with all due respect, admit you've spent more on less. Yes, I have. So I don't think $19 in 1988 is necessarily a waste of money. No, especially for a Count Floyd poster. Especially given Ed Grimley absolutely loves Count Floyd. Absolutely. Trust me, if there was a 1988 Nidra Vols calendar, I wouldn't touch it with a forklift. Good. Oh, you thought I was going to say I was going to buy it. No. No, that's just absolutely disgusting. She would have been like 80 years old in 1988, and I would have been 13, and my mother would have probably sent me to therapy if I did that. And also, you have taste. Whoa. Whoa. Hold on a second. Don't rush to judgment. Episode four, Ed's in hot water, looking after the apartment building for the Freebus family while she and her husband are on vacation. Ed tries to fix the water heater and ends up going down the drain into the ocean and on an island where he finds a stranded Amelia Earhart-esque aviator. Wow, so he found Amelia Earhart. So that's where she was all this time. I think this is actually sort of like the Genesis story of the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. Ed went down the drain and ended up in the ocean and found 
Amelia Earhart or a lookalike of Amelia Earhart, well, that's just the open from Super Mario Brothers Super Show. I'm not wrong. Except where is Toad during all of this? Who cares? Don't add variables. In this episode, the amazing Gustav brothers explain whirlpools, going back to the drain that we're talking about that uh, Ed Grimley went through, and they get sucked into a whirlpool, which is just, again, a bathtub drain. And they actually see themselves going down this whirlpool, and there's this rubber duck. Now, comparatively in size, it's a giant rubber duck, but you see at the end they're actually going down this bathtub drain. And in Count Floyd's scary stories, instead of watching a scary story, Count Floyd draws a scary story about a boy and his dog tiptoeing into Dead Man's Cave, which contained bars of gold. A blue blob monster scares the boy and his dog out of the cave. Count Floyd changes the story into a story about a girl at a slumber party with Frankenstein. Don't ask. Episode 5. Great Expectations. Ed gets trapped in a crate while trying to get a birthday present for Miss Malone. Meanwhile, in a spoof of It's a Wonderful Life, Miss Malone is depressed over being passed up for a TV movie and being a struggling actress at 25. She meets a guardian angel named Jim who shows what her life would be if she was never born. The Amazing Gustav brothers in this episode go back in time to their childhood where they had a disagreement while in the bathtub. There must be a theme here about bathtubs, because they went down one in the previous episode, and now they're arguing in the bathtub. And I also do need to add, I think this is the first appearance of the Gustav brothers' mother, because while they're arguing in the bathtub, Roger decides to show how water is displaced by basically doing a cannonball into the bathtub, getting water everywhere, and the mother's furious. Oh, and by the way, I should add, who voices the mother in this series? Jonathan Winters. Like I said, he does at least like half a dozen voices from what I could tell in all these episodes. And Jonathan Winters, he just does such a great old lady voice. Going back to Davis Rules, did it there, did it on Hollywood Squares episodes back in the 70s. It's vintage Jonathan Winters, to say the least. And then the Count Floyd scary story in this episode, Count Floyd shows some super scary home movies. Then he plays a preview from next week's movie called The Spooky Cloud in the Middle of the Swamp. Episode 6 is called Grimly PFC. In the wrong line to return a library book, Ed joins the army and ends up second banana to a Bob Hope-like USO performer voiced by Dave Thomas. In this episode for the Amazing Gustav Brothers, a wrecking ball smashes through the brothers' lab, creating a lot of dust. The brothers just throw it back to Ed at that point. The wrecking ball destroyed their lab. They can't do anything. Sorry, Ed. And then Count Floyd's scary stories for this week. Count Floyd's best of episode one looks back to a 1966 scary story. When the show doesn't have the movie Count Floyd wants to show, he tells the story of Peter Rabbit. 
A kid then tells a story about a family going to a drive-in movie. Episode 7 is called Moby is Lost. Oh, I should say Moby is Ed's goldfish. So Ed's pet goldfish Moby is missing, and Ed hires a television-obsessed sea captain to lead the search. In the Amazing Gustav Brothers segment, the brothers talk about their growth acceleration experiment gone wrong as a giant domestic cat startles them. And then Count Floyd's scary stories for this episode. Count Floyd tells the story of the revenge of the ghost chicken. Cecil and Egbert criticize Count Floyd's show in the method of two famous film critics from that time. Boy, I wonder who Cecil and Egbert could be. No idea. Count Floyd interrupts the review and gets three thumbs down from them. I don't think we ever got three thumbs down from Siskel and Ebert. Yet these two kids, they gave Count Floyd three thumbs down. I have questions. (laughs) I may have answers. Where did the third thumb come from? Uh, You have two hands. Yes. So one person person gave one thumb down. The other gave two thumbs down. Didn't even think about that. Yeah, you overthought it there, I think, or underthought it. Episode 8 is titled Good Neighbor Ed. Ed wins a contest, but to fulfill the contest rules, he needs to take a picture of all of his neighbors. And believe it or not, this episode is actually in the form of a musical. Not the entirety of the episode, but you had song numbers throughout the episode. The Amazing Gustav Brothers segment this time talks about elasticity by creating a 100-meter rubber band Then they stretch it to its maximum length before the tension launches the brothers into space. And Count Floyd's scary stories. Count Floyd has a special guest, Skippy High, who sings quote-unquote scary songs, like one about a cat and one about a grasshopper. Skippy flips out and acts out a traumatic scene from his childhood. Episode 9 is titled Driver Ed. Miss Malone needs to learn how to drive and calls upon Ed to teach her, but an accident turns the two into wandering spirits who haunt Mr. Freebus. The Amazing Gustav brothers in this episode try to prove Newton's third law of motion, which for those of you who don't know is that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction, and they do this by playing baseball. Emil pitches a baseball to Roger, and Roger has to hit it. That's your equal and opposite reaction. That proves the third law of motion from Newton. But the problem is he gets two strikes without swinging the bat. And then on the third pitch, it's a called strike, even though he got beamed in the head. And I should add, their mother is the umpire in this situation. And then Count Floyd's scary stories. Count Floyd shares one of his favorite stories from the comic book Tales from the Graveyard but starts by flashing back to his childhood where Floyd's mom threatens him if he ever reads a comic book again. When Floyd shares the story, his mother punishes him for reading the comic book on air. That's going to take us to episode 10, which is Blown in the Wind. Tell me if this sounds familiar. While on his way to his aunt's house for a game of Monopoly, Ed is caught up in the same tornado that sent Dorothy Gale to the land of Oz, only he ends up on the farm with Aunt Em. Uncle Henry, and a recuperating Dorothy 
where a traveling summer stock show with a Jerry Lewis-like director are hoping for a shot at Broadway. So you had a takeoff of It's a Wonderful Life earlier. Now you've got The Wizard of Oz. And we've got another one coming up the next episode, but we'll get to that in a little bit. The Amazing Gustav Brothers this time, the day's lesson is on aerodynamics. The brothers take flight to Hawaii in a paper plane. However, the paper plane is downed by a volcano. Anil gets sunburned because neither brother decided to bring sunblock on their Hawaiian trip. And for Count Floyd's scary stories, during the show, Count Floyd is flustered by the kids in the audience playing with a Count Floyd doll. He is then interested in the doll, at least until a kid talks about how Raggedy Ann drove a wooden stake into Count Floyd's chest. Count Floyd's story is about a couple on vacation because Floyd, he was reading a travel brochure. So Count Floyd talks to the kids about voodoo because there's like voodoo cannibals in this trip that Count Floyd's talking about, even though the vacation place doesn't have it. I think it's just a little bit of goofing around there. So he talks to the kids about voodoo. Then the kid that had the doll starts tickling the Count Floyd doll with a feather, and he starts laughing and reacting. And then she starts, like, tossing the doll around, like, holding the hands, and he's, like, popping up and down. And then another kid tries to take the doll from this girl, so they're yanking the doll, throwing it to the ground, and all this does is, in voodoo form, is just punishing Count Floyd in the process. You mentioned the Wizard of Oz. First of all, that's another network. And second of all, you're two years early. Two years early for what? The Wizard of Oz cartoon. I'm just saying it's like the movie. I I know what you're trying to say. Okay, episode 11. This one's a good one. I really thought this was hilarious. Eyewitness Ed. Needing hot dog franks for a party, Ed makes a run to the store, which resembles the Bates Motel and witnesses Derbingle robbing the proprietor, who's voiced by Eugene Levy, and he testifies against him and then has to get into witness protection. Now, first and foremost, I should say the store that Ed goes to, coincidentally or otherwise, is called the Bates Deli, B-A-Y-T-E-S. But again, remember, the store looks like the Bates Motel, which it does, and You're not going to believe the name of the person working the register, doing everything at the deli. Not even any guesses? Is it Norman? It is Norman. And actually, at one point, his mother comes out and says something to Norm Bates or Norman or whatever. But it's exactly like Psycho at this point. And even the voices are like spot on. And so Ed witnesses this robbery, but he doesn't really witness it per se because he's watching on a TV screen the closed captioning feed from the security camera, and he thinks he's watching a TV show. So while this robbery is happening, he's thinking he's watching a TV show, but then it hits him literally and figuratively because the robber is walking backwards and bumps into Ed Grimley and basically falls over backwards, and that's when the police swarm and grab him and arrest him. 
But again, since Ed decided to testify against him, lock up this guy, he went into witness protection. And basically, Ed Grimley looked the same, except instead of having black hair, he had blonde hair. He still had the cowlick and all that stuff. So he looked just like himself, but with blonde hair. And he changed his voice from his Ed Grimley voice to having a voice with like a slight British accent. And somehow the guy who did this robbery, he got out and he found Ed at a magic show. His girlfriend happened to be the hat check girl. And he's like, that guy looks familiar. That guy sounds familiar. And then finally it hits him. It's Ed Grimley. And he tries killing him throughout the rest of the episode but it backfires on him and he gets arrested again. Greg, I hope you're sitting down for this because this is where it gets really goofy. Oh, I'm ready. What is it? So for the amazing Gustav brothers, there is no lesson today because the brothers have tickets to the circus. Their mother, who we've talked about earlier, catches them playing hooky when she rides a unicycle while spinning dishes on a high wire. The boys improvise a lesson about the science of balancing stuff. Their mother shoots the boys out of a cannon because they're playing hooky, telling them that once they land, they're to walk all the way home without any shoes on. And then for Count Floyd's scary stories, Count Floyd's movie is in 3D. Woo! The oozing killer slime monster. A kid complains about the 3D effect sucking. We all had those glasses back in the day. It wasn't a great effect. The end of the movie has the slime monster killed from a drop bomb. Count Floyd asked the kids how they enjoyed the movie. And the kid who complained earlier, he's all covered with slime while every other kid is not. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Oh, if you think that's weird, episode 12. Not the episode itself, but the segments. Eddie, we hardly knew ye. Ed goes into the hospital for a tonsillectomy where his roommate is a werewolf voiced by Christopher Guest. Yes, his roommate is a werewolf. Sit back, Greg. This is where I think it gets really bizarre. The amazing Gustav brothers in this episode, we talked about how Ed's getting a tonsillectomy. Emil explains tonsils to Roger by going into a mouth not unlike what they do on the magic school bus. So they like shrink down in size and go into a normal person's mouth. Emil falls down the throat, but he grabs onto the tonsils, saving him from possible death. Roger then rescues Emil by using some used dental floss that was in the guy's mouth. Don't ask, but hey, it works as rope. The segment ends as the person drinks a can of soda, causing the brothers to go down the throat, who then tossed the show back to Ed and his story with the werewolf as his roommate in the hospital. This is where I lost it. With Count (laughs) Floyd's scary story this episode, I was dying laughing when I wrote this, and I actually had to rewatch this about four or five times to make sure I got all the details down accurately. Just imagine the visual picture when I explain this. So Ed Grimley dozes off and dreams of a groovy Count Floyd edition from the 1960s. The day's story is the attack of the spooky killer 
50-foot potato monster man. And it starts with a girl who got a job at a hamburger stand. That night, the janitor of the hamburger stand knocked over some secret sauce. And when we say secret sauce, it did say secret sauce on the barrel. But think nuclear ooze. So some of this nuclear ooze fell onto a potato, causing it to mutate into the title character, a spooky killer 50-foot potato monster man. Meanwhile, somehow the girl the next day is at a spelling bee when the potato monster man appears. The God, I can't. This is going to be tough. I'm sorry. The girl wins the spelling bee and wins a prize. The prize is a vegetable chopper, like a slap chop, you know, what uh, Vince used to use, you know, with his nuts. <laughs> You're going to love my nuts. You know what I'm talking about. So it's one of those types of choppers. So the Potato Monster Man sees this and starts running away in fear. Count Floyd starts talking to a young girl in an evening gown in the audience, and she's named Vanna White, just like you know who. And she even says, she was a spelling bee champ and says, my name is Vanna White, V-A-N-N-A-W-H-I-T-E. Count Floyd then starts talking to the kid version of Ed Grimley. Dead serious. He's got the cowlick. He's got the clothes. He's got those slacks hiked all the way up to his nipples, basically. Looks just like a little version of Ed Grimley. And then when there's still a minute to kill, Count Floyd jokes. This is more of a 70s joke than a 60s joke, but it's still a great way to end this segment. He jokes, who's timing this thing? Nixon? Fade to black. (laughs) I don't know what was the best part of that. The spooky killer 50-foot potato monster man, the girl winning the spelling bee and getting a vegetable chopper which scares the potato man, or Count Floyd talking to, quote-unquote, Vanna White, or Count Floyd talking to little Ed Grimley, or even that last line, who's timing this thing? Nixon. Perfect. And then fade to black. Nothing else after that. Beautifully done. Because every 10-year-old kid on the playground, you know, they all reference a 1988 Watergate. Well, again, like I said, this episode, I said from the 60s, it clearly looked like something from the flower power era. So yeah, Nixon became president in 68. I know Watergate didn't happen to like 72, 73. It makes sense, though, as a joke, I think, given what we know about Nixon, even though, again, it wasn't in the 60s. And after all that mayhem, that takes us to the final episode, The Irving Who Came to Dinner. Irving Cohen pays a visit and helps Ed reveal a couple of hucksters. And Irving Cohen was a character that Martin Short played on SCTV and actually brought to SNL. So this isn't, again, some random character. This is one within the SNL and SCTV canon. Final Amazing Gustav Brothers. As Ed Grimley's vacuum goes wild, the brothers talk about how vacuums work. Roger makes cocoa, which interests Amel, until Roger says he has no marshmallows. And that drives Amel crazy. And even Roger says at one point, well, okay, instead of marshmallows, we can put pieces of chalk in there. 
oh, you're just making things worse. I mean, you're making Emil really mad. And then Roger accidentally turns on the drawing of the vacuum. <laughs> no joke. The drawing of the vacuum on this chalkboard, and Roger accidentally turns on the drawing of the vacuum, causing both brothers to be sucked into the vacuum drawing's canister. And then their mother comes by looking for the brothers, can't find them, and she decides to erase the vacuum cleaner from the chalkboard in the process of erasing Roger and Emil. Then the mom cleans the erasers by banging the erasers outside a window, causing the brothers to become human again, and also causing them to fall several stories of the ground. <laughs> I told you this gets more and more bizarre, but at the same time, it gets funnier and funnier. And then Count Floyd's scary stories for this episode. Count Floyd's final story is called The Prince, The Witch, and Some Other People Too. A prince was looking for someone to marry. He heard someone singing, leading him to a witch. This glorious voice was coming from a witch. The prince locked the witch in a tower until the wedding, where he met a beautiful princess held prisoner in the tower. So one night, the prince and that princess escaped from the dungeon tower in the middle of the night. As they flee, the witch magically appeared to warn the prince that the princess herself is a witch who put the original witch under a spell which would only end if she got married. So now this new witch, if you will, the princess, turns the original witch and the prince into frogs. They got married and lived happily ever after, which made the count mad because he doesn't tell fairy tales. He tells just scary stories. And believe it or not, that is the series. In retrospect, this series, I think, is a great series. But I think there's one problem. Maybe two. I think this is a series that maybe if it was like three years earlier, or maybe even three years later, I think it might work out a little better. But also, and this sort of ties in with the three years earlier, three years later thing, Please remember what debuted in late 1989, The Simpsons. And The Simpsons sort of had this renaissance of the primetime cartoon. So I think if this waited to like 91, I think it could work as a primetime cartoon, even though you're talking now six years since Ed Grimley last appeared on an original SNL episode. Alternatively, I think if this premiered on Saturday nights, maybe after Saturday Night Live, or maybe, let's say, once a month in place of a half an hour of Saturday Night Live, I think it might have worked there too. It just doesn't work for an audience of kids. I mean, yeah, maybe you had college students watch it. And really, if you look at it, Saturday mornings, you don't really have like overly adult shows like this. Maybe they're trying to capitalize on Pee-wee's Playhouse, kind of, sort of, since Pee-wee's Playhouse was originally a comedy show when he was with the Groundlings and whatever else. I know it later transitioned to Pee-wee's Big Top and Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but I can see some parallels there. 
But if you look at the schedule, it aired originally at 11.30 in the morning. On ABC, you had the venerable Bugs Bunny and Tweety show. I don't think you're beating that. But I think you get away with it on CBS. They were airing the Teen Wolf cartoon. After the original run aired, the time slot moved around February of 1989 to 12.30 in the afternoon, and that lasted the rest of the 1988-89 season till late August. And at that point, on ABC, you had the ABC Weekend Special, and speaking of venerable series that lasted forever, it seems, on CBS, you had CBS Story Break. So as I said earlier, I think this was destined to fail because this was adult cartoon guts packaged in a kid's show, or at least in a time slot which would normally be occupied by traditional Saturday morning cartoons. Maybe it would have worked at a different time slot. Maybe it would have worked possibly in primetime. Maybe it could have been that groundbreaking show that The Simpsons turned out to be. Because remember, there were like no primetime cartoons Essentially, from previous entry, where's Huddles? I think we did have like one or two in the early 70s, but we did not have a primetime cartoon on from legitimately like 74 to 1990. So maybe we could have had a a rebirth, a renaissance of the primetime cartoon from the 60s. The Jetsons, the Flintstones, Top Cat, we could go on. And believe it or not, I really couldn't believe this. This was a Hanna-Barbera show. I just didn't imagine the legendary Hanna and Barbera doing a show like this. But at the same time, if you ever watch it, I'm specifically talking about the open. I think there's some animation that only Hanna-Barbera could have done. If you see the credits, right near the end of the credits, probably in the last, like, seven seconds, ten seconds, five seconds, you see Ed Grimley, in terms of Martin Short, dresses Ed Grimley, you see him with, like, a latex outfit of Ed Grimley. So you see him put on this outfit, which is basically his clothing in cartoon form, and then you see Martin Short put on this mask of Ed Grimley, this cartoon mask over his real face. I thought that was pretty cool for 1988 technology. I mean, yeah, you could do that nowadays really easily, but I thought that was pretty darn slick for 1988. But like I said, I sort of warmed up to it on episode two and I was like totally dead by episode 11, episode 12. Those last three episodes, man, those shouldn't have been the last three episodes. Maybe you should have put those first. Just saying. I just, like I said, just almost fell out of my chair laughing because it was so funny. And you heard how Greg and Chico reacted to those three capsules, the capsules and also the two segments. It was downright hilarious. Now, if you want to see this, good news. There's plenty of ways to see this. They do sell the series on Amazon Prime. 
It's $1.99 an episode, or you can get the whole series for $19.99. Or you could do what I did and waste money. No, not waste money. This is good money. Like I said, it's a good series. It's money well spent. In my hand, I have the Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley DVD. The price I saw is now like $22.99. I thought I paid less than that for it. I don't think I paid more than $20. So maybe the price varies on different circumstances, on supply and demand or what have you, how many they have in stock. I don't know. But you can get it on Amazon Prime for a little bit less than getting the tangible physical version of it. So guys, do we have anything else we want to say about the completely mental misadventures of Ed Grimley? It was completely mental, that's for sure. That's definitely a good word to describe it. As I said earlier, I think given the reactions you guys had, especially in the last three episodes, the humor was there. It just wasn't necessarily there for the teenage audience and the preteen audience. It was more of a college adult show. So maybe if it moved, maybe we'd be talking about a different fate. But unfortunately, completely mental misadventures of Ed Grimley, while it was brilliant, it just became a thing on TV. That's going to do it for this week. But please remember, go to itwasathingontv.com. We have 457 previous episodes there. And also remember, we've got all sorts of great stuff there. Minisodes, live shows, extended versions, instant reactions, delayed reactions. Greg did the first delayed reaction based on the uh, Winter Classic. No, the Stadium Series. The sta- oh, I'm so- oh the, the Winter Classic is on New Year's. I apologize about that. I'm not an NHL fan in case you don't know. But the big thing is... There's over 600 files there. So I think we're at 604 now, 603. Regardless, there's plenty of stuff to keep you busy there. And please don't forget we're on all social media, minus that one site. Instagram, Threads, and Mastodon, for example, over at It Was The Thing On TV. Except don't forget Facebook, we are at It Was The Thing On TV podcast. And always remember, if you want to find us on Mastodon, you need to search for us at It Was a Thing on TV at tvwatch.party. And don't forget the Friday on the bus cuts of our two shows for the week on Fridays at Place to Be Nation Pop Experience. And if you listen through the whole drop this week, man, what madness we had in the first episode, huh? Yeah, it was a little mad in the beginning of the first episode. Just a little bit, but we got through. It was a sort of mental misadventure there. But also, please remember, you can subscribe to our podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. That includes Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Audible, independent podcast players. You'll find us. We're not that hard to find. And please don't forget, we're also on YouTube where you can like and subscribe to our channel. And please don't forget to hit that notification bell so you can stay informed of all future uploads on the channel, including episodes coming up next week. We're going to talk about a show we actually referred to last week. I think it's the first time we've referred to that series ever, and magically it popped up on our list. 
I'm not going to give away anything because I don't want to give away the title by you guys going back and listening to one of the episodes last week and saying, aha, I know what they're going to talk about. No, we're not going to give away any secrets. But then the second episode, Chico, I'm very tired because you know what? Stuff happens on days like these. Stuff happens on days like these indeed. Maybe if we uh, threw you back to the good old days of the uh, mid to late 1970s, it'll jog your memory. Yes, please take me back to my infancy. If you couldn't tell, we're kicking off our annual Lost in Translation week, which is more like three weeks because reasons, but our first installment. Hey, you like that 70s show? Yeah! We're going to make it British. Boo! So you got those two episodes coming up next week right here at It Was a Thing on TV. As always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you in advance for all the birthday gifts you're going to send me. And we'll catch you here next week with those two episodes. Greg, take us home. Wow! Now, guys, I wish that the completely mental misadventures of Ed Grimley had this guy. Are you Charles Finster? <sighs> Do you know who I am? <laughs> That's right. I'm TV personality Pat Sajak. Do you have any idea why I should be here at your home, 446 Braintree Lane? Because you just won $10 million! Why does Pat Sajak look like he could, like, release his jaw and swallow him whole? He had the biggest mouth. He's like some sort of reticulated python or something. <laughs> That's how they animated him, I guess. Oh, my God. Well, guys, I cannot believe that this episode is basically almost over. I mean, it's finally over, but wait a minute. What, what, what oh, the... my. Oh, hold what? on. Hold a birthday on. Surprise. That's the T-Man's music. What's going on here? Yeah, everybody. It's me, the G-Man. I'm back here. Oh, Mike, it's been one year, I can't believe it, but I'm here to make a very important announcement for Greg. Okay. That's right. G-Man, do you want to say it? Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm here to announce that Greg is cashing in his money in the bank, everybody. Oh, my gosh, a birthday surprise indeed. That's right. I got the briefcase right here. I'm going to give it to Greg. Here you go. Oh, thank you, G-Man. He's been holding this briefcase well for me. He's been protecting it well. So in this briefcase, I got a contract for an episode in May. So, okay, guys, like I always do, always want to have the dramatic reveal ready for you guys. Here we go. Now, I have it hidden. You don't know what it is, right? Cannot see it. No, you covered okay. up the title. I covered up the title. Here it is. Here's the show. Coming to It Was a Thing on TV in late May. My life was all in order. They tossed a hand grenade. I thought I might be dreaming, but you didn't fade. I thought if I ignored you, maybe you just might go away. Is it, it just my love? It's very clear you're there to stay.
we mentioned Hamilton Camp in this episode. He's in Just Our Luck. Yes! Great timing. But also, Greg, I do want to make a declaration that briefcase, you call that a briefcase? That's a briefcase. That looks like something 10-year-olds keep their Yu-Gi-Oh cards in. Okay, Chico, get it right. It's what douchey 10-year-olds keep their sports cards in. Like I said, it's what douchey 10-year-olds keep their Yu-Gi-Oh cards in. Well, you missed the douchey part. But no, that refers to uh, a comment I got earlier this week. This is one of those cases that you can buy at like Harbor Freight, which you can customize the foam to any size you want. So I bought this for a couple of card shows coming up this weekend. And also the card shop I go to has a trade night, first ever trade night tomorrow night. And so I told the owner that I got this case because I didn't want to have like 300, 400 cards just sitting in a cardboard box or anything like that. I wanted to organize it in some capacity. And he says, don't tell me you have one of those cases that douchey 10-year-olds carry sports cards in. And I said, yes, I'm a douchey, almost 50-year-old who carries his cards in a orange plastic case of some sort. So yeah, I'm apparently almost five times older than douchey little kids who swear their cards are worth so much money. 